It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Angela Yee, host of Angela Yee's Lip Service. If you listen to my podcast, you know I love making space for women to be themselves. That's why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of the women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more. And listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Podcast Playground. Hooray! Taking a walk with Buzz Knight. Well, Doris Kearns Goodwin, it's so nice to see you. I'm so glad to be with you. This is fun. What a beautiful night. It's perfect for this. And you are now a repeat guest on the Take It A Walk podcast. You're the first repeat guest. Well, I, that's an honor. I'm very <laughs> glad to know. <laughs> I went back into the records, and uh, you were on episode six, and now we're, I've lost track, I don't know, 50-plus Pretty amazing. Episodes. Good for you. Yeah, well, thank you for being uh, always a supporter and certainly a supporter of uh, this uh, Take It A Walk podcast. Uh, Podcast, which uh, I'm so enjoying doing. I get to uh, meet new people along the way, but that's fun. But the reconnecting with my old friends uh, through the podcast is also one of the real uh, joys of it. No question. The older you get, the more the old friends matter. Yeah, it really is uh, special. So um, how have you been? What have you been up to that's fun? Well, a couple things. I mean, I've I've gotten into the film world now. I mean, I think it partly started with the experience of working with Steven Spielberg on Lincoln. Before that, my husband was involved in the quiz show movie with Robert Redford. So I formed a partnership with my great friend, Beth Lasky, and we've been executive producing a series of docudramas on the History Channel. So the first one was on George Washington, um, which was in 2020, and then there was one on um, Lincoln, and then one on Teddy Roosevelt, and now we're doing FDR, and then hopefully Eisenhower after that. And what's great about them is that they're a mixture of a real film. They're, they, they're filmed in Cape Town, so par- half of it is, is an actual actor's drama, cinematography, and the other half is the historians providing context for it. So it's a great combination. They've been filming all these in Cape Town, and if it hadn't been for COVID, I would have gone down there. It's a wonderful place, evidently, for films because they have not only a tax credit, but a lot of different sceneries that you can have. Because it could be the Badlands for Teddy, or it could be the Tenement House the next, next breath. 
and they have a lot of actors that can be the, the sort of ex, extra actors who can speak English. So that's been really fun. It's another world. Now I've got involved in a potential film with Amazon. And so that's that's been a new part of a career in a certain sense at an older age. But I'm still writing. I'm still writing and lecturing, which is the, the core of what I do during the day. So writing, uh, how do you discipline yourself to uh, set up a day to get your writing done? The, the huge thing for me all the years when I lived in Concord when my husband was alive is that I would wake up every morning at 5.30. And he didn't really get up until 8 o'clock or so. So I had that time between 5.30 and 8, no emails, just to be able to just start writing. And then we'd have breakfast. And then he'd go to his study, I'd go to mine, then we'd have lunch and then break again. And he might read in the afternoons and I could go back to work. And then, as you know, because I used to see you all the time, we'd always go out to dinner at night to the various bars in Concord. And that was the end of the night. So I never tried to work at night. And we'd get to bed, usually by 10.30, to be able to get up at 5.30. What happened when I first moved into Boston after Dick died is I didn't keep to that schedule. I was staying up late at night and not getting up as early in the morning. And finally, about five months ago, I said, I have to stop doing this. So I'm back to going to bed at 10.30 or 11, and except for some nights, of course, but waking up at 5.30. And, and that's the only way I can do it, because then if I'm doing these other things, the movies or lectures, I don't do any of them till afternoon, at least, so that the morning is totally the writing that I'm doing. And then you just force yourself. You can't escape it. You have to do it. I feel bad I'm taking you out clubbing tonight in Boston. No, it's okay. It's, it's night, you see. It's night. It's okay. We're going to the Quinn, but we'll we talk are. about that. We'll talk about that. So, but do you, so I'm just fascinated on the process. So do you set a goal of how much you write, or is it just to sit down and take on the task of writing? It's really just to sit down and take it on. I mean, I know there are certain writers who say they have to write three pages or, you know, I remember hearing some of them, they they wouldn't smoke a cigarette until they got a certain number of pages done or they wouldn't have a drink until that. Um, Sometimes, though, I do sort of set a deadline for when I want to finish a chapter to send in to my editors. And, um, And that at least helps me because even if I don't make the actual deadline, at least it's close. Like, I, I now I'm working on Chapter 4 of a new book, and I promised myself by the end of July I'd get it done. Now, the end of July is creeping up very soon, and but I, I will be close. I will because I set that deadline. So it matters to have these little deadlines. What sort of perfection are you aiming at with these initial writings? That's really interesting to ask because I think people are very different. There are some writers who can just write really, really rough drafts and then edit them, and they're great editors of them. They might go over them four, five, six times. I can't really finish a chapter unless it's almost done. So that if there's something missing and there's some piece of research I need to do, I have to do it. It's not the greatest way to do it, but it's the only way I can do it. So at least I know when I get these chapters done that they'll need copy editing, they'll need my editors to comment on them as I do it, but I've got my best foot forward. That's just the way I try and do it. And uh, can you talk about what you're in general writing about? Yeah, it's really it's really been an extraordinary and, and hard and emotional and good process. Um, Dick left 350 cartons of materials that he had saved over the years. Um, he kept everything. He was just a pack rat. So he's almost like the Forrest Gump of the 1960s because he's everywhere you want to be in the 60s. So these, these papers of him start with hundreds of letters to his wife and his, not to his wife, it's hundreds of letters to his mother and his best friend when he's in college at Tufts and then goes to Harvard Law School. 
And then in the 60s, we've got him going to work for John Kennedy as an aide in the campaign, and then being on the White House staff, and then going to work for LBJ and writing all the civil rights speeches, and then going against the war in Vietnam, and then being in the McCarthy campaign, then leaving that to go with his best friend Bobby Kennedy and with him when he died. So it's really a time capsule of the 60s, but with all the primary documents that are there, memorabilia from the inauguration, letters from Jackie Kennedy, memos to Bobby, memos to the presidents, um, Dick saved everything. So um, we started going through the boxes in those last years before he died, and I'm writing about that process of going through the boxes with him. And it's, it must have been like every place that you turned, just some new surprise you found, right? No question. There, there are things what I had never seen before. And when you, this, when you're an historian, it's the most exciting thing is to be holding an actual document. And here it was not that I'm studying FDR or Lincoln or the papers of Teddy Roosevelt. It's my husband's papers, and and he was really at the center of so much stuff. And and was a great writer, and a lot of the drafts of his speeches are now icons. The We Shall Overcome speech, the Howard University speech, Gore's concession speech was just mentioned on the December, the January 6th hearings the other day um, as such a contrast to the lack of peaceful transition of power now. So uh, I know you made a trip to France that we want to talk about, which kind of ties into maybe a little bit of the way the world is. Do you want to talk about your trip and what you experienced there? Yeah, I just went with a group of people to Normandy, where I had never been before. I can't imagine why my husband and I didn't go there, because it was the most powerful place I've been in a long period of time. And just being able to see those beaches, we went to Utah Beach and Omaha Beach, and imagine how those soldiers were able to get out of those landing craft, go into that water. People were killed in the water. They have to swim to the shore, and then they have to climb up those hills, and there's machine guns raining on them, and they kept doing it and doing it. And not only the courage it took, but the sense of wanting to do this for their buddies and wanting to do this for the nation. It was just such an emotional experience. And then you see the cemetery there. It's so beautiful, just these very simple white stones, um, crosses and Jewish stars, that row after row after row of all these young people that gave their lives for the country. And it just was such a contrast to come back to, you know, what we're feeling right now, which is the lack of a collective sense of a nation, a lack perhaps of sacrifice for the greater good, and, and a lack of leadership. I mean, when we were there, I had to give lectures on Eisenhower and Churchill and FDR. What a great three leaders. How lucky we were that all three were there together at the same time. Right. And where are they now? Come back. Right. And when you really reflect on it, though, uh, do you still believe democracy will be intact? I think we have to believe it. If we don't have that belief that it's possible that we can make things better then it's not going to happen. You know, I think FDR once said, problems created by man can be solved by man. We've created these problems for ourselves. You know, we, we, we haven't had enough empathy toward other people who are feeling different from ourselves. The parties have divided along rural and city lines, along west and east lines and midwest lines, and campaign financing is out of whack, and nothing is done in Washington across party lines like it used to be. But all those things were different at one point, so they can be slowly made better again. But creating a, a sort of a more healthy democracy, I think, is the challenge for this generation. 
and it, it's going to take a lot. It's going to take a lot of changes in our political structure. It's almost like a political revolution, I think, we need to make that possible. And you, ever, as long as I've known you through, I mean, not as challenging times as now, but certainly through other challenging times, you have always held, based on your view of history, that sense of optimism. I think history does really provide that for you because it's just a reminder that we've been through really hard times before, that um, that when you think about the early days of the revolution, when it was not at all clear that the nation would be born, when Washington is at Valley Forge without supplies and it looks like it might be over, you think of the early days of the Civil War when the country's literally split apart, and when, when Lincoln worries that democracy's in peril. You know, he said that in some ways the central issue of the war at the very beginning was, can you have a country if the people who lose the election, as the South did, can decide to secede from the Union, then democracy proves itself impossible. And it took a civil war to answer that question, but it finally got answered, and the country was stronger with the Emancipation Proclamation. And then you have the Great Depression, where we're at rock bottom when FDR comes in, and yet somehow he was able, with his leadership and that inaugural speech that changed the mood of the country, to get us through the Depression. And then finally, the early days of World War II, when Hitler had conquered almost all of Europe, and we were only 18th in military power. I mean, incredible. You know, we only became 17th when Holland surrendered. We let the military establishment go during the Depression, and yet the Allies won that war. So looking back at history, it does provide a sense of perspective and hope because you see that really tough times, and the people, you know, I've said this, I keep saying this because I think it's important for people to understand this, people didn't know at the time how it was going to end. We know it ended well, all those things. We know that the war was won. We know that the Allies won, that the Civil War ended right. But they didn't know that, just like we don't know where our next chapter is going to be written. So we just have to fight for it. And that, and I, I, think, I think we will. I mean, I think we are doing that right now in many ways. There are people in local government, people in movements, people in the January 6th hearings that are making, making points that I think will be felt by people. Do you ever just wonder how uh, difficult it is for someone to want to run for an elected office? I think you've hit on the exact problem. I mean, we don't have right now the great incentives for people to want to be in public life. Um, They look at what's happening in Washington. How can they feel they're going to really make a difference? And yet you have to raise all that money. You're then indebted to the people to whom you've raised the money from. Your private life is going to be exposed. And you're not really necessarily feeling like, I'm doing something that matters. It's worth it all if you can feel like you're making a difference. Because that's what politics does. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt once said when he first got in, he didn't really know that he was doing it for a purpose. He just thought it might be fun. But then he realized that he could really change things for people. And it made him feel a sense of fulfillment. And that's what you're hoping for in any profession you choose, any vocation. And politics allows you to do that. It allows you to see other people's ways of life. If you do it right, you're experiencing a lot of different um, kind of work experiences, a lot of different people at different stages of your life. But until we get that sense back that a younger generation wants to get into public life and change the, the rules of public life, it's going to be hard. Well, you did it again. You gave me some hope as I was uh, necessarily uh, not as hopeful before I talked to you. you got to be hopeful. you got to have hope. Remember that? Miles and miles and miles of hope (laughs) from damn Yankees. (laughs) You've done it again, Doris. I really appreciate it. So um, I mentioned earlier the Quinn. So we are situated for taking a walk on Commonwealth Avenue 
in Boston in the Back Bay, which is a glorious area, and this is, I guess, the uh, the mall area Correct. that we're that we're on, and we're across the street from this amazing building. Uh, can you talk about the special place that uh, you're uh, uh, you're yeah, taking me to? <laughs> I, I am. Well, indeed. So what happened is there was a club in Boston called the Old Algonquin Club. The Algonquin Club was a stuffy male club for years. I remember when I was teaching at Harvard, I went to it once just to give a lecture. But then it was all men. So finally, finally it opened to women. But it was sort of too late to not appear like an old guy's club. So these people from... Bain on the Edgertons took it over two years ago and they renovated the entire, it's a beautiful old building, it's six floors and they made it a club for younger people as well as older people in Boston so if you're a young person, so the average age looks to me like it's 35 or 40, I thought I'd come here when I joined and I'd meet my 80 year old guys (laughs) I'll meet some guy there, now the average age is probably 40 or something but it's very diverse if you're a non-profit or you're younger you pay less dues than another person might pay and they've attracted an enormous group of interesting people so they've got like five different places you can eat, there's a cafe downstairs with really good food then there's a fancy restaurant on the third floor then there's a pub where all the games are shown and there's billiard tables then there's a champagne bar and then there's a little bar and so you can choose where you want then there's a roof deck where you can eat or just go and have a drink and they kept the artwork from the old Algonquin Club so they've got all these old portraits of these 19th century guys along with modern art that the people have really put together here so it's really been fun I I found it a place well you know from Concord the great thing about Concord was going to the same places regularly you know the people you know the waiters you know the the food that's going to be there they know what drink to serve you (laughs) so for me in Boston this place has become that that's awesome now was the original Algonquin was one of the original founders of the Boston Globe associated with that I, I original I don't know. One? I should know. In fact, the interesting thing is the founders, there's a founders club. So there's certain people who were involved that they have a special room that they go to here. We'll have to ask them when we get in there who, who was the original founder. It could well be. What a spectacular space. The Quinn. The Quinn. Instead yeah. of the Algonquin, it's the Quinn. The Quinn. All right. <laughs> so that was a good idea. So, no, it's really, they have lectures here. They have these two big living rooms that people who belong can work in during the day. So they have big couches. And they have this in, in a music studio where when you become a member, I haven't yet done it, you get a, a rest record made of whatever your favorite record is. And then you can go in and it's soundproof and just play it with your friends. Oh, how neat. And at the champagne bar, there's dancing. So um, it's, it's, it's really something. And then there's rooms for private functions and weddings and things like that. So and it's just a really sense of whimsy. There's, there's a, a closet you can open and inside comes candy that comes floating down. And you, you'll see when I take you inside. There's a lot of stuff that just is fun. They made it not at all the opposite of stuffy. I love it. I can't wait. Well, so last question. So have you been out doing speeches? Yes. Um, a lot of the lectures that were either put virtually or canceled in 2020 and 21 are now back. So I'm floating around again. And it's great to just be able to, a lot of these organizations that I'm speaking to, it's the first time they will have gotten together in two years. Um, so there's still nothing to 
equal that personal networking. I mean, virtual lectures can work. Maybe you can have even more people watching than you would at a real lecture. But I'm going to D.C. next week, and I'm, I, I, I went on this lecture to Normandy, and then there's a whole bunch of them in the fall, and I'm really glad they're back. I, I enjoy meeting people from different trade associations, different um, businesses or, or educational associations or colleges, and each time you're in a different place, and you, you just are learning something about whatever group it is you're with. Well, when we did that last uh, episode six, uh, taking a walk, you had just started going back, and you were talking about the electricity that right, you feel. Right, that's exactly uh, right. Has it really elevated even further, the electricity yeah, in your Yeah, I think mind? so. I think, I think people are less nervous now, rightly or wrongly, and um, there's a sense that they feel a sense of life returning, and part of it is to have these meetings where they're meeting their fellow doctors or lawyers or anesthesiologists or whoever it is I'm talking to, and then they'll have a whole bunch of workshops, and then I'm talking about leadership or entertaining them hopefully along the way. Oh, I'm sure you're doing both. Thank you. <laughs> I know you I know you are doing both and it's so great to see you and thanks for Oh for, you uh, too Buzz. It's been I'm glad we could do that. It's a perfect back. night for this. Beautiful Look at this. Back. We could be in the nineteenth century here. Just there'd be horses coming down the street right now instead of instead of cars. <laughs> I love it. Thanks Doris. I you're very it. welcome. Love you. Thank you. You too. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.